Father God, Lord, as we approach your word to um, look at future things, Lord, I pray that we would um, do so with, with an eye to your word, Lord, that we would be faithful to your word. Uh, where you are silent, I pray that we would be silent. And Lord, we would uh, focus on uh, learning and recognizing that you gave us the information that you did. Um, but Lord, I pray that we would not bring our opinions or, or our the likes and, and desires in, into this. And Lord, I pray that we would, we would approach your word humbly and submissively. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the fact that you've given us your word in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we know that eschatology is the study of future things, and we have said that eschatology is generally divided between personal eschatology and general eschatology. Personal eschatology is what the New Testament teaches will happen to individuals, and we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with God, either uh, praising him with your praise uh, around the throne or praising him with your just destruction in hell. Every human being will go to one of two places. And broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that find it. And narrow is the way that leads to heaven. And so uh, we, we broke general eschatology down into the three major uh, areas. There's premillennialism, and that's the belief that Jesus will physically return to the earth before the millennium. Ah, millennialism, which comes from the, the Latin ah always means without, so there is no millennium. And then post-millennialism. And Anne was uh, giving me a critique and she said, I really need a whiteboard uh, to see what you're talking about. And so I found this chart and, and it did not print out as clearly as I would like, but I just want to use this chart to kind of follow through what the three different views cover. So Premillennialism, uh, which is what most of us have been exposed to in the, the Baptist world, uh, it, it would suggest that Pentecost occurred, and then you have the church period that occurs that we're in now, and then there will be a rapture, and then a seven years of tribulation. And I, I noticed that the chart maker here divided that between three and a half and three and a half, just to, to, to give a nod to the mid trib folks. And then uh, Armageddon will occur, and then uh, the millennial reign will begin. At the end of the millennial reign, which we looked at last week and looking at Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment, and then the new heaven and new earth and eternity forward. Amillennialism, which says that, that, that there, there isn't a literal thousand year reign, would say that the church era that we're in now is what the Bible's talking about in Revelation 20 about the millennium, that uh, at the end of that, there will be a great tribulation period of, of seven years, Armageddon, Gog and Magog, which is again what we looked at last week will occur, and then Jesus' second coming. You see, if you look uh, up at uh, the other chart, there's a rapture and then the second coming, are two different things. The second coming, Jesus comes back at Armageddon, destroys the armies of the world. We're on the white horses after the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in amillennialism, it's just one time event. And then God sets up their great white throne judgment, eternity forward, and the new heaven and the new earth. 
Tonight, we're going to look deeply at post-millennialism, and it would say that there's a church period that we're in now, that that would then usher in the millennium because, and we'll, we'll go into detail about that, but that the church era will usher in the millennium. At the end of the millennium, there will be seven years of tribulation, Armageddon, Gog and Magog, and then Jesus' second coming, the final judgments, uh, great white throne judgment, and then the new heaven and new earth. So the, the big difference between amillennialism and postmillennialism is that postmillennialism teaches that the current church age, that God will utilize, use the church to usher in the millennium, that things are going to progressively get better and better and better until, bam, we are now in a golden age where the whole world is worshiping Christ. So now we're gonna, we're gonna dig deep in postmillennialism. Now, as I said, I'm trying really hard not to just create a straw man argument and then knock it down. So <clears throat> in uh, one of the things that some, you, people will do, and if you watch politicians, they do this all the time. If you watch anybody in disagreement, they will do what is called a straw man argument, which means I will present someone else's position weekly and say, okay, so here's what they believe. Uh, let me give you an example. If I was new earth versus old earth, and I said, well, clearly, uh, if, if I was an old earth uh, believer, then I don't believe that the Bible literally is saying that there are seven days. So I don't believe God's word, what it's teaching there. And so, <clears throat> and then I would easily knock that down. I've created, instead of fighting the real man, I've created a little fake argument and then I've destroyed it. And so we're trying not to do that. We're trying to honestly look at what this belief system is. So the first time, that there was a creed that included a post-millennial eschatology was the Savoy Declaration of 1658. So in that declaration, a post-millennial viewpoint was espoused. You can read the statement here. It, it is very much so King James language, so I'm not gonna, gonna read it, but it's there in your notes. Uh, John Jefferson Davis, who wrote uh, a lot about this, notes that the post-millennial outlook was articulated by men like John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, and Charles Hodge, all great giants of the faith. So this is not a position that's held by people who are just silly or don't really understand the Bible. Um, Davis argues that it was the dominant view in the 19th century, but was eclipsed by the other millennial positions by the end of World War I due to the pessimism and disillusionment engendered by wartime conditions. Let me, we, we've talked about this, but I want us to understand what he's saying here. Edwards, Warfield, they believed that if the church stayed true to being what it was supposed to be. And remember, Edwards got to experience the Great Awakening where cities so turned to Christ that police departments had to put a notice in the paper that said, stop bringing us the stuff you've stolen. We don't have any place else to put it anymore, so stop bringing it to us. We can't find who it really originally belonged to, just please consider yourself forgiven, stop it. Bars were shutting down, not because Christians were standing outside with little flags that said you shouldn't be drinking, but because nobody was going. 
the, in their mind, they're seeing the world turn to Christ and they're saying what's going to happen is, is that this revival is going to spread across the whole world and then the millennium's going to start because everybody's gotten saved. The gospel's gone out to every tribe, tongue, and nation and so many people have gotten saved that all the sin in the world is going to be done. It seemed like everywhere they turned. You, you had England in, in the midst of a great revival. You had the United States exploding in revival. You had the missionary movement where missionaries were being sent all over the world preaching the gospel. I can see why they would think that. But when World War I occurred and almost an entire generation of young men slaughtered each other in the fields of France, people stood back and said, it ain't getting any better. We realize that humankind, when left to itself, devolves into wickedness. And the whole world was so disillusioned by the millions of young men that died for six inches in the fields of Belgium for no apparent reason that theologically people said it's not going to just keep getting better until Jesus comes back and goes, well, y'all won. <clears throat> Postmillennialists generally diverge on the extent of the gospel's conquest. So what I, that means is, is there isn't really a, a firm un, definition among postmillennialists of when exactly the gospel's conquered. Is it when 50% of the world's gotten saved and the world has that salt and light flavor to the point to where Christianity has such an impact on things that it, it's, or is it 75%? Is it 80%? What exactly point is it that Jesus just comes back and goes, okay, you won, I'm gonna be king now. And so that's a common point of argument among them. The, the majority of post-millennialists believe the apostasy. Now, in the book of Revelation, there's, there's talk of the, the apostates and the apostasy. A, a lot of believers think that, that what that is, is that after the rapture, how you probably have always heard it taught, is after the rapture, the people who are left in churches are going to apostate. They're gonna come together and form one world false religion and that that's going to be the dominant religion, and that's where uh, the, how the Antichrist is going to get his power. Well, ha, if there's not going to be a rapture, or there's not a, a second coming, then how do you deal with that? And so, typically, what they've dealt with that the apostasy theologically is said um, that that is the Jewish rejection of Christianity from the first century up to now. When we had Rabbi Wilicki here uh, at the church this last um, Halloween, it was Halloween night, uh, afterwards, we, uh, me and Jeff sat right over there and just talked for several hours. And he would say something and I would say, did you realize that you just accidentally quoted Paul? And then I would quote the text that Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he's so close and the sticking point is, is he said, Judaism teaches that by doing the outward forms, that ultimately you change yourself from the outside in. And I said, you see, though, 
I think if you're honest with yourself, Rabbi, and you look in your own heart, you'll realize that that's not possible. And so what the gospel says is that we can't change and so that the outward forms actually become a crutch that we can claim our own godliness through. And so the only way that we can can be changed is from the inside out, so close. It was almost like he had blinders over his eyes. And Paul talks about that quite a bit. And so what the post-millennial position is, is that the apostasy that's talked about in the book of Revelation, that is the Jewish nation, God's people's refusal to acknowledge the gospel. That's how they deal with that. So where do they get, biblically, where do they get this? Where, where does it come from? There are two places that, they're the primary text verses that are used. One is Matthew 5.18 where Matthew writes, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Uh, the King James says, not one jot or one tittle will pass away before everything is accomplished. And so they would look at this text and say that God is going to not let things pass away and that God is not going to, that he's going to work through people and accomplish his, his text. This text and um, this understanding of Matthew 5.18 presupposes a global conquest of the gospel in order for this, and they look at Matthew 5.18 as a prophecy to be realized, which in ex, uh, uh, which leads to the literal fulfillment of the third petition of the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That the Lord's Prayer, uh, that prayer is actually literally answered here on this earth. And so they believe that that will eventually happen. Now, in Catholic theology and in Lutheran theology and in Episcopalian theology, there are these ideas of the church that we didn't cover when we went over the church because it's not something that, that, that as Baptists we would hold to or even, I think, Presbyterians. And that would be the church militant and the church triumphant. That in the Bible, the church is presented two different ways. The church militant, which is where we are on this earth. We are at war. This world does not want us here. We are not of this world. Our citizenship is not of this world. And we are every day in a battle and in a struggle against the enemy that's coming against us. And then the church triumphant is after believers die, after believers, uh, after the Lord comes back, that the church triumphant will be in heaven. They're, they believe in a unity of those two things, which is why in Catholic theology, they pray to other people and not just to the Lord because that is the unity of the church militant and the church triumphant means that I can pray to the church members of the church triumphant to help in things here. So it, it's, there's some, a unity there in that theological thought process. What this theology is believing is that the church, mil, uh, the church triumphant and its assistance literally transfers from heaven to the church militant on earth. So the church on earth becomes the church triumphant. That over time, because people get, so many people get saved, because things change, that this world becomes so godly, again, that Christ's return is not 
a battle cry, but a return to say, good job. Now, how does that change happen? There are two different views in post-millennialism of how that happens. The first one is through changes in uh, or how, the means of the gospel conquest. So I listed revival as post-millennialism first. And that was the doctrine that was held by the Puritans and some today. And it teaches that the millennial will come not from changes in society top down, but from the bottom up. That so many people turn to Christ. So many people get saved that eventually the government itself, because it's full of Christians now, will change. But it's not our responsibility to change from the top down. For much of Christian history, the view was the opposite. Have you ever, when you were in civics class, did you ever, when you read about church and state coming together, and we were all taught that, you know, there should be a separation of church and state, um, that, there, that, that when the church and the state are mixed, that what that does is that corrupts the church. It doesn't reform government, it corrupts the church. And when I remember as a, as a teenager in civics class or, or, or political science or thinking, well, why would anybody think anything else? Do you realize that the, the last um, Baptist who was executed for his faith was a preacher in Virginia in 1783? Baptist preacher, they would not license him to preach because he wasn't Anglican. His last name is Holmes, when I, uh, so he probably can to David because I can see that kind of stubbornness. Um, and he was, uh, he was executed by weight, which means that they slowly stacked rocks on top of him until he squished him, uh, but, uh, giving him the chance to re- recant and say, I won't preach anymore. So then they would knock the rocks off and he could live. And uh, his dying, dying last word was more weight. So uh, you got to respect that. Uh, so why, you look at that and you go, why in the world would we mix that? If you look at this theology, almost all bad behavior comes out of bad theology, by the way. Almost all bad behavior comes from a bad idea of who God is and how to apply his word. It comes from this theology, the idea of mixing church and state. Because if you were a believer in Switzerland in 1600, you would have honestly believed that the government being in charge of the church, levying tithes on the people, being a top-down enforcement of Christianity is ultimately gonna usher in Jesus' second coming. Because this is the church, the, the Christianity working through the government. And so uh, John Calvin in Geneva was kicked out of the city from, by the city council from pre- because of what he was preaching. They didn't like what he was preaching, so they kicked him out of the city because the city, the local government, had control over the church and they enforced the rules of the church on the people. If, if the church taught that you couldn't uh, be an adulterer, then if you got caught in adultery, then the, the biblical uh, rules would be enforced and that's, that would be throughout the city. And so throughout all of Europe, and through parts of the United States for, for centuries. That was the case. And where that stemmed from was from this theology 
believing that the government, if it was Christian enough, we would usher in Jesus' second coming. Now, we've all seen how that falls apart. And again, that, that the separation in church and state, that in fact, that very term came from a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to a group of Baptist preachers that were concerned with, about the fact that the First Amendment did not create a strong enough boundary to keep the government out of the, from meddling in the church. And so he wrote them a letter to explain to them that the government would never, ever, ever get involved in, in church affairs. And that's where the term in that letter from Thomas Jefferson, the term separation of church and state came from. So all the yay in that's going on now is all y'all's fault as Baptists. Now, I know it's hard for us to look at a position that's new and fresh and something you've never thought of. So I want to, uh, Brian, we're, we're finished. So I want to give you a chance to ask questions. 